Well, that's probably um, the fact that you've been experiencing some back pain. Because I thought in today's talk, it's going to be about pain and pleasure. Um, and um, but first of all, I just wanted to do a just a summary of the talk I gave last week at Sawtell. Um, one of the early Zen stories regarding the, the first ancestor, the legendary Bodhidharma, and his um, the person who became his successor, goes like this. Um, Bodhidharma faced the wall, and as you remember, he, in mytho mythologically speaking, sat facing the cave wall for nine years. The second ancestor, so the guy who was to become his uh, successor, um, stood in the snow outside the cave for a long time, cut off his arm, and said, Your disciple's mind has no peace as yet. I beg you, Master, please put it to rest. And Bodhidharma said, Bring me your mind and I will put it to rest. The second ancestor said, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma said, I have completely put it to rest for you. What I read, I, the, the thing about that story is that um, it kind of like set a lot of the, start, the, the tone of Zen practice in some ways. The, the fact that you have to go to such extremes of, of self-denial or self-hate as to cut off your arm. Um, and uh, one imagine cutting off your arm would be very painful. And um, even, even though a lot of the, um, the paintings of Bodhidharma with the big bulging eyes are often quite sort of poking fun at him a little bit. So there was this, this sense in which there was a a lighter side to Zen, but often when um, um, this this kind of idea of um, pushing ourselves to extremes did get somewhat transferred to the West in the 1960s and 70s, and um, so there was an idea that uh, you know if you attended these long retreats for say seven days, and uh, and you, you know you. Were, you, you doing meditations 14 hours a day, getting up at five in the morning, sometimes sitting all through the night and pushing and pushing and hard and hard just to have this sort of um, breakthrough experience. And um, with lots of pain in the knees and legs and uh, and there was this, this sort of, you know, the sort of, a lot of Japanese teachers encouraged this idea of this macho Zen to, to really push through the pain. And um, fortunately, um, there's been uh, a change of heart over the past 20 years or so, especially with the influence of a lot of um, female teachers that have come into the practice and that, uh, you know, trying to find a different way um, that we don't necessarily have to experience such extremes of pain in order to have a spiritual understanding or a spiritual experience. But this sort of like, um, this dichotomy or dualism between pain and pleasure seems to run throughout a lot of spirituality, not just Buddhism. And you'll find it in other religions. And even with the, the historical on Buddha, you know, you get this idea where when he, 
when he left the the the, the, the palace where he lived um, and uh, saw the suffering in the world and decided to become a uh, an ascetic. Um, you know how the first six years of his lo- of his ascetic life was basically starving himself to death and trying to come to some spiritual realization in that way and. You know, has, you know, there's very different variations on the stories, but like this and the sense in which he was virtually near death from starvation, and there was a um, a woman who was uh, attending uh, dairy cows, and she had some milk, and she gave a historical Buddha some milk, and he was rejuvenated, and sort of acknowledged his needs for good wholesome food, and then sat under the tree, and eventually had his awakening experience. Um, so what I, what I, and, but, but even, um, um, even with some of our female teachers, like even with Joko Beck, there's sometimes when you read her books, there's a, uh, um, sometimes a portrayal of practice, which, um, focuses a lot on, a lot on, on pain and suffering, but, uh, not a lot on what's enjoyable about practice or what's enjoyable about life. So, you know, Joko had a saying about, uh, don't do this practice unless you absolutely have to. Um, So, um, one of the uh, um, images of of Buddhas, which kind of like gives us a different feel, um, and you've you've probably seen this little figurine uh, in Chinese restaurants and so forth, is the big fat laughing Buddha. And uh, I remember my mother once bought a big fat laughing Buddha and just said, oh, if you rub his belly, it gives you good fortune. And he was identified with good fortune. And uh, his teaching was laughter. And um, he obviously enjoyed himself. And he was based upon a historical figure who lived around about 1000 and uh, 10th century. Uh, this uh, traveling monk, uh, quite an eccentric Zen monk called in uh, Chinese Potai, in Japanese Hotai. And apparently this, this guy traveled around the countryside in, in, and uh, he would uh, wander from village to village and uh, he uh, uh, apparently would carry around this big uh, sackcloth like Santa Claus on his, on his back. It was full of um, food and clothing that had been donated and little candies and goodies for children and stuff like that and toys and and uh, so when he'd arrive at a village the children would come out and they would you know sit in the marketplace and and uh, he'd laugh and give out these toys and the passers-by would oh god who's this guy you know he doesn't have much but he seems to be happy and um and um one of the the only story we really have about him in terms of a zen story was uh a uh, you know a, a, a traditional monk came up to him and said, "What is the meaning of Zen?" And uh, he just put his sack down on the floor, so like that. And uh, then the guy said, "Oh, okay. Well, what's how do you actualize Zen? What's, what's the practice of Zen?" And he picked up the sack and started walking. And um, so this. Um, this 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 character was was widely acknowledged in a lot of Zen paintings. Hakuin, we just uh, read that Songazar Zen. He uh, 
did a lot of uh, calligraphy and, and paintings uh, in his later years, and there's quite a few that he did of Hotai. And uh, in, in my teacher, Barry's uh, Zendo in New York, there's a brush painting of Hotai with the, word, with the calligraphy, Mind like tofu, in a square bowl it is square, in a round bowl it is round. So that sense in which that sort of, um, how, the, how the mind takes the shape of the different bowls, or the bowls, I guess, being sort of symbolic of the circumstances we find ourselves in, and how the, uh, the, uh, the flexible mind, or the mind of Tofu, or the Teflon mind, can just roll with those circumstances. And um, so, you know, we get that sense of what's... We don't want to exclude that sense of also of um, fun and pleasure and enjoyment and, uh, um, and play from Zen practice. And, and in some ways, um, I often, you know, uh, like to think of um, our practice here as finding ways to make it more enjoyable and more pleasurable whether it's how we use our instruments or when we do some chanting next year or, and so on. Um, there was, um, so, you know, so Barry's take on this too was like, when, rather than saying, you know, don't do this practice unless you absolutely have to, well, don't do this practice unless you really enjoy it. And uh, how, can we, how, can we, how can we make it, it enjoyable so that... Um, and uh, with the emphasis on the fact that suffering is not overcome by renouncing pleasure. Um, so, that got me thinking a little bit about um, pain and pleasure this morning. And um, there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. Um, there was a... Um, an, um, I, remember, I remember when I was um, doing... Um, um, when you do Vipassana practice, uh, I used to do the Vipassana practice sometimes in the, the Blue Mountains when I was younger. And in that traditional sort of Burmese practice, we used to do, I could do a 10-day retreat and you do one hour walking or one hour sitting, one hour walking, one hour sitting, or you can sit for a couple of hours if you want to, or three hours and not do the walking. And in, 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 in that sort of practice, you were often encouraged to observe um, every, every moment from the viewpoint of um, pleasure, pain and neutrality. And uh, as in what, what is arising in the moment, uh, what we're actually experiencing. And I got to thinking about this a bit more and now is this a neutral, is this a pleasurable experience, is this a painful sensation or is this a neutral sensation. And I'm not sure if anything's actually neutral. Um, I think the sense in which, in a, in a really simple way, you can almost maybe, you know, life itself and our experience of life is on this polarity between pleasure and pain. And in this, we wouldn't experience pain without pleasure and we wouldn't experience pleasure without pain. So like with everything, day and night and um, warm and cold, we, you know, they're, they're, they have that unity about them because you need the opposite to experience them. And um, 
And I remember on, 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 I think you, you know, when we, if you do have some memories of ever being, being on a retreat and when you are restricting the range, like a retreat simplifies everything down to very basics. Um, so, you know, you're either meditating or you're walking, meditating, and, uh, or you're sleeping. Um, or you might there might be an occasional talk by a teacher, but the the these retreats are very broken down into the very basic schedules. Uh, so there are very few distractions. You know, you're not supposed to you know read any books or listen to the TV or radio, or you know use your phone. Uh, just try and really break it down to the bare essentials of the experience of being alive. When you do that, um, the um, experience of pleasure, when we're experiencing pleasure, does get intensified to a certain degree. So, um, and it's funny too when we think of pain and pleasure, and in a metaphorically speaking, we could also speak of hell and heaven. You know, as hell being symbolical of pain and heaven being symbolical of pleasure. Uh, and a lot of them, a lot of emotions could be. Put into one of the one or two, either a painful emotion or a pleasurable emotion. But like, um, so even the simple pleasures or appetites, you know, some people make a distinction between emotions and appetites. Others people don't. But like, hunger and the satiation of hunger through food and drink, and how when you when you start to moderate as well, because in the in the Burmese tradition you would only eat for um, breakfast and lunch and there wouldn't be any any dinner. In, in the Zen retreats you also have a, a dinner as well, so there's three meals. But um, the actual pleasure that came from the, you know, the, 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 the food itself that was all you know, a memory I have. And, and, um, and so The, the, um, and when we think of pleasure and pain too, we, we, they also, they occur, obviously, we can only experience them in this moment. But there's also a kind of overlay of past and future involved as well. So there's a sense in which we can experience pleasure in looking forward to pleasure. Yeah. Um, so we can have a, a sort of pleasurable anticipation of going home and having that theatre and hanging up for all day. Um, or we can um, uh, reflect back on um, pleasurable uh, memories, for example, and uh, experience a sense of pleasure in, in, the, in the present moment by dwelling on memories from the past, which were pleasurable. Um, and vice versa with pain, um, you know, we can we can anticipate pain happening in the future, which creates unpleasant feelings such as anxiety. So if you're going to go to the dentist, for some of us, we might associate that with pain, so it's not something we look forward to. Or sometimes we can get caught up in uh, you know ruminating about the mistakes we've made and bashing ourselves up about that and, and creating pain in that way by going down that track. So it's interesting how all these 
overlays of pain and pleasure are complicated by the fact that we have this capacity as human beings that which always complicates our life as compared to animals, this ability to dwell in the past or dwell in the future, which I don't think many animals have that. They're more focused just on the pleasures and the pain of this moment. And once the, once the, the pain's gone, they're, they're quite content again. Um, in fact, there's a, um, a famous um, Greek Hellenistic philosopher called Epicurus who founded the school of Epicureanism, who founded his philosophy on, uh, on uh, pain and pleasure. And um, he um, kind of argued that um, you could distinguish between empty desires or, and natural desires. So it was a sense in which he felt that the, uh, the sort of the simple human life uh, uh, was complicated by society and culture and where a lot of um, beliefs were indoctrinated that we needed to have certain, you know, um, you know a good job, nice car, whatever it was, that um, all the things we, we, we pursue in the, in the pursuit of happiness. Whereas his philosophy was, you know, we can actually be quite happy and content on a very basic, you know, healthy diet. You don't have to have lots of gastronomic delights to you know, appreciate food. You can appreciate very basic, simple food, and you can appreciate the company of friends and so forth. So he, he tried to develop a philosophy out of uh, not trying to deny that we, we, we have this very, our lives and our suffering are very strongly tied up with how we relate to pleasure and pain. And he tried to to to, to to base the philosophy on, I guess, the sort of wise pursuit of pleasure, and uh, the uh, the wise dealings with pain. And when you think about it, like I think we get we get caught on both those ends of the spectrum of the polarities on pain and pleasure. A lot of our, uh, our suffering can uh, get complicated, perhaps to. Depending on how we get, we relate to those two polarities, and I was thinking also maybe too when we think of our early origins, in infancy and and childhood, how our parents relate to pain and pleasure, and how they help us to regulate our experience of of pleasure, excitement, or pain, how that sort of in in some ways can either hinder or help us. Uh, in our development as to how we relate to pleasure and pain as adults. And, uh, and so for some of us, um, we can get um, quite uh, caught up in uh, some excesses in, in, in the sense of, of, of pleasures, or we can start to use the pursuit of various pleasures as a defense against pain. And, um, and, and so, I think when we talk about um, relating to, we, I, don't, I think we, we, can, we can't talk about relating to pain without relating to pleasure. I think they're just too closely interconnected with each other. And um, so there are some pains, natural pains, which we, um, I think it's fine to take some, you know, look after ourselves and care for ourselves and if we need to take some kind of um, pain relief that's 
but uh, and uh, there are some pains that um, may be physical. In fact, when you think about pain and pleasure, I was trying to think about it like, well, there's physical pain and there's physical pleasure. Um, and then we might say there's an emotional kind of pain. And we could probably say there's an emotional kind of pleasure. I know, when, we, when we're experiencing gratitude, that's an emotional sort of sense. And then, and then you can get the ways in which both the, the physical and the, and the emotional can come together. So, I mean, you could have sex, which I guess was just primarily a physical kind of pleasure. Oh, and the, uh, and, and the, the physical kind of pleasure is diminished if there's not a strong emotional connection. And so we can have the strong emotional connection uh, which enhances the physical pleasure as well. So, uh, and then I thought, well, is it also is there is there a mental kind of pain and a mental kind of pleasure as well? I mean, is um, reading a book, for example, is that a mental kind of pleasure? Um, what other mental kinds of pleasures and the and uh, is there a mental kind of pain? Uh, is uh, certain thoughts that go around in our head a form of mental kind of pain. And um, so I, I got to thinking that um, as, we, as we try and make the shift in our practice from getting out of our sort of, um, out of our heads and more into our bodies and more into experiencing each, each moment of our lives, uh, from the point of view of the newness of each moment, rather than getting caught up in memories and the past and seeing things through the past. Uh, it would be interesting to just kind of like go through a day or just, just be aware of all the different ways we're experiencing pleasure and pain during that day and uh, how we're able to um, appreciate um, uh, and our ability to be with both pain and pleasure um, and, and also inquiring into how we may get caught into various kinds of protective or holding strategies around both pain and pleasure and uh, how that then can maybe create a form of unnecessary suffering on top of that. So how can excesses of pleasure create suffering? I mean, obviously if we overeat, we're going not to feel too good in the morning. If we drink too much, we're not going to feel too good in the morning. I mean, they're just obvious examples of how pleasure can lead to pain in that way. We you know in our work too, we think about how young people sometimes get caught up in eating disorders, how eating can be, can be such, a, it's such a, an intrinsic part of being alive and how it can get so easily caught up in, um, in emotional issues which then we end up sort of um, trying to control or deny or influence others by, you know, how we get entangled in eating problems or, or drug and alcohol problems. And uh, so as human beings, how we're very vulnerable to this constant play of pleasure and pain that we experience. But... Um, Hey, I'd rather be um, a human being than a, than a robot. <laughs> um, you know, it's the uh, the range of emotions we experience in terms of pleasure and 
and pain that, that constitute um, our ability to experience joy. Um, the simple joys of the colours of nature and the smells of nature. So, um, you know, we, you know it's, it's so easy to get disconnected from. Um, you know, I often have that sort of, um, kind of like a mythological sense, but that sense of, you know, waking up and like it was the first day on earth and it was just like an Adam and Eve kind of moment, you know, and you just wake up and you look around in this garden of Eden and just experience the magic and the pleasures of this garden that we were in. And, um, and you know, I think we can approximate to that in this kind of practice by, by really paying attention to each moment of our experience and um, including opening ourselves up to the natural pains of life, whether that's, I'm think, thinking here mainly of, um, of the emotional pains of life, you know. We, um, we know the price of love is one day going to end in sorrow when the, uh, the loved person is no longer with us. That, that doesn't stop us from loving. So I don't know what that has to do with Christmas, but um, I would just say um, over the coming days ahead, um, let's all just uh, see how we can wisely engage with um, the pleasures of Christmas, whether that be the basics of food and drinking, or whether that be the pleasures and pain of meeting family members or friends or maybe in varying states of <laughs> happiness or unhappiness. <laughs> We're all going to be experienced, yes. Okay. And, um, and just ask yourself, I guess, you know, what is the middle way? What's the middle way between pain and pleasure? What's the, what's, what's, uh, what's the wise course to take? Okay.